Please open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. We return our attention now to the epistle of James. We move into the final chapter. And we will come across James's strongest rebuke, condemnation in the letter of the coming judgment of the rich. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. You'll find the text on the back of the notes. I'd like to begin by reading our passage and having a word of prayer. And then we'll begin. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Lord God, pray that as we study this passage, you would both convict and comfort, um, that you would wound and heal, that, that we might see where we are doing these things and where they're being done against us. We might take hope and comfort knowing that you see the judge of the earth will do right. Help us to understand this rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a difficult passage. Um, Reading the commentators, there is much discussion over who James is even addressing. Um, Partly because, unlike previous rebukes, there is no call to repentance. There is no prescription for a cure. There is simply the declaration of judgment, weep, howl, know for sure you will be judged. And so many suggest he's he's not actually addressing the church, which seems odd to me. Um, And so we have to begin by considering who he's speaking to. Who, Who is this rebuke for? And why is it being given? And so we'll begin our first point, the pronouncement of God's judgment. The pronouncement of God's judgment. We have to begin with the objects of the judgment. Because the flow of the text is pretty straightforward. The announcement, the heralding, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming against you. That's the announcement of judgment. And then the rest of the text is justifying it. Why are these things coming? Why will they be judged? So first we've got to ask the who. The who. Um, he simply says the rich. Now in the epistle, we've already seen that the rich were identified with those, some of those at least, inside the church. Turn back to chapter 1. At least some of the church. And remember, this isn't a particular church. James is, is writing to the scattered church in the dispersion over his area of the world. But we see in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, counsel to the poor and lowly and counsel to the rich. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So there, James expects, are some in the church who could be called rich. Some of them in the church who are called rich. But then turn to chapter 2. Your second blank here. The rich are also identified with those outside the body in contrast to the church. When he rebukes the church for showing partiality, for currying favor when someone with a purple robe and a gold ring walks in, he says this in verse chapter 2, verses 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? So here the rich are seen in contrast to the church. The the you is the church, and the rich are those who oppress you. So there are some within the church and some without the church. I would suggest to you that James is simply giving this rebuke, and where it lands rightly, it lands rightly. There may be some who consider themselves Christians who are guilty of these things, and, and he's slapping upside the face. It's also an announcement of God's judgment to the wicked rich everywhere. I would suggest for our purposes that we let this rebuke wash over us, that we consider whether or not this lands on us rightly and and go forward from there. Which brings me to point B, the purpose of the judgment. Why in in a letter written to the church, and I've suggested that the purpose of James is to encourage the saints to persevere in trials by faith, relying on the wisdom of God. Why announce this judgment? Two, two reasons I can think of. One, to warn the body. To warn the body. In many respects, what we see here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, is the full fruit gone to seed of the wisdom of the world. Turn back to chapter 3, where James introduces the theme of worldly wisdom as opposed to heavenly wisdom. Verses 13, Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What's the characteristic trait of this other wisdom? It's bitterly jealous. It's selfishly ambitious. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. Now that wisdom linked, if you remember, with chapter 4 and the source of quarrels and conflicts. Chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your passions that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And we see, I think, a further exemplification of these values right here. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Here are people operating on their own pleasures, their own desires, and they're willing to do violence to others. This is the logical end conclusion of that wisdom when it's matched with the wealth and the power to act in this way. So there may be some in the church who are guilty of this. They show up and they're, they're false believers. <laughs> they're corrupt for some reason. They, they want to identify with the church. And James would warn them that they, they're facing the wrath and judgment of God. Others, perhaps, may be tempted to envy 
the wicked rich. You know, if I had money, I'd do that too. And here, James is letting us see the evil of this. Um, so to warn the body, to warn the body. But also to assure the body, to assure the body. We've seen that many in the church, James assumes, are the ones actually the victims of this treatment. And so in a letter designed to encourage believers to persevere, I believe it is encouraging to know that God sees and is aware and cares passionately about injustice. In fact, look at the very next verse in, in, in James 5, James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He's making the application that knowing that God sees and knowing that God is furious and knowing that God will judge, endure, persevere, be patient. So to summarize, as we hear this, I'm going to try to lay out who and what God is angry at. And we would do well to consider as the richest people in the richest nation in the world in its richest time, whether or not any of these things land rightly on us. We, we would do well to consider that. This isn't just for fat cats out there. Um, this is common to wealth. Um, it's, that's why James can just say, you rich. Not every last one. We'll, we'll see there's at least one um, who doesn't fit this in verse 11, Job. But rather, this is the characteristic hallmark sins of wealth. We live in a day and age that is very suspicious of power and wealth and income inequality. Because the culture is well aware, as the Bible is, the potential for people with wealth and power to abuse it. And when it is abused, God is angry. So that's, that's how we'll, we'll hear this. James is writing sort of scattershot out to the persecuted, scattered church. And where this rebuke lands rightly, let it land. Even God's pronouncements of judgment are implicit invitations to repent. That, that's the logic, if you remember, of Jonah going to Nineveh. And the Ninevites repent, and they think, why would God send this warning? Because there was no call to repentance there. It was just yet 30 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. But they considered, why would God make this announcement if there wasn't a possibility of us to turn? So even as strong as this message is, there's an implicit call to repentance where it lands. So that's, that's my suggestion for how to hear this and how to consider this. First, consider, could, could this be describing me and my activities and my heart? And then, also, we can take comfort and assurance that God is righteous. He'll judge the earth. And those who are wrong and doing wrong will give an account. So, the pronouncement of judgment. Now, we'll get to the reasons for God's judgment. And there are four reasons given. And you see it with the plural use. The end of verse 3, you have laid up treasure. Verse 4, you have kept back by fraud. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered. And they flow together. They're, they're intertwined. The reason for God's judgment. The first in verses 2 to 3, they have stored up for themselves. They have stored up for themselves. The reason why I say stored up and not stored up treasure is in the Greek, the word just means to store up. And the context indicates storing up what? It's used of the church setting aside money to give 
to Paul the missionary as an offering. It's used to speak about people stockpiling wealth. It's also used, we'll see, of storing up wrath. We'll get to that. So they've stored up for themselves. The summary is given at the end of verse 3. Let's move through the description. In vivid language, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Your first point, your, your riches, your garments, and your metal are ruined are ruined. And here, perhaps, you hear an echo of James's older brother and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, his teaching. Turn, turn to uh, Matthew 6, which I think will help give some explanation of what's going on here. James, as usual, is building off the teaching of Jesus, developing and applying the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, well-known passage, verse 19, where the same word, store up, is used. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy. Your garments are moth-eaten, and your gold and your silver is rusted. And he's going to charge them with laying up or gathering up. Now, I think he's absolutely building off of this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But... If your eye is bad and your whole body will be full of darkness, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So back, back to James, by using the language of our Lord, gives us some insight in what these people are doing. Their riches, their garments, their metals are ruined means they're gathering them up because it's their treasure. They're, they're stockpiling it because they worship it, because they're serving mammon. You don't have to be rich to have stuff be your treasure. You don't need to have seven zeros at the end of your bank account to, to have this hard attitude. This is their treasure. And the irony is that it's rotting. It's corroding. It is already. Not just it will, but it is. You think of what happened when you tried to gather too much manna in the wilderness. It would rot and become wormy. And then we see that the very corrosion of their goods will testify against them. It will be the evidence of their guilt. See, this, this rebuke to weep with howling is, is supported by evidence. And the evidence is these, these hoarded, treasured goods that are moldering. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away 
along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Next, not only will the corrosion of their goods testify, be the evidence against them, but it will spread to them and consume them. The, the very gangrene on their property and their things, metaphorically speaking, will infect them. Their corrosion will consume them like fire. This is another, um, I think, clarification that this is an issue of idolatry. Because again, in the guide of the Bible, you become like what you behold. You, you begin to resemble what you revere. You remember in the Old Testament, the, the repeated refrain, they have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, speaking of the idols. And then we start speaking of the people. These people have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. They're resembling their gods. Here, the things they worship are rotting and moldering, and now they are as well. It's spreading to them. You, you will be conformed to the image of what you most value, whether it be Jesus Christ or stuff. You will become more and more like what you worship. Now, there's great irony here. The closing sentence, you have laid up treasure in the last days. I think it's meant to be a double entendre, double meaning. They think they're storing up treasure. Obviously, this is what they value. This is what protects them. This is what they need, what they want. And they're storing up all right. But the same word is used in Romans 2.5. Let me give you this usage. I think James may well have a, a double meaning in mind. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So literally in the Greek, it's just you are storing up for yourselves in the last days. And the reference to the last days, I think, highlights the ridiculousness, the folly and the wickedness of this. Um, if, you, if you look just a few verses later um, in chapter 5, we get an idea of what James means by the last days. James, like most of the New Testament writers, is considering that with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in the last epoch. The Lord could return at any moment. In that sense, we are in the last days. Look at verse 7 through 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So here's the picture. We're in the final moments the, the end is nigh, that the, the judge is at the door, and these people are gathering up things destined to perish, and then it makes them perish with it. They have been storing up wrath for themselves. They have been storing up wrath for themselves. So that, that's the first charge. You're materialist worshipers of stuff. You've been gathering it up in these last days. You've been hoarding, gathering, accumulating for yourself stuff. And again, you don't need to be wealthy to do this. Sin always starts in the heart. Sin always starts in the heart. Um, Proverbs 10, 2 to 3 says this, Treasure gained by wickedness does not profit, 
but righteousness delivers from death. There's even an irony here. The one who worships the thing doesn't enjoy it as much as the one who enjoys it rightly. God, God in one sense, has given us all things freely to enjoy. It is not wrong to enjoy the things of this world as God's good gifts, but when you start worshiping them, when you start serving them, it turns to ashes in your mouth. Their garments are corroded and moth-eaten. Their gold is rusted. Even what they think they've gained up is actually going to be wrath. Going to be wrath. Second, we see that they have stored up for themselves, but there's, there's a mechanism they use to do this. Uh, and then a further indication that their gathering of goods is wicked is how they went about doing it. And they did it by defrauding their workers. They did it by defrauding their workers. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, in Matthew chapter 20, turn there briefly, we get some idea of what he's describing, the context they're living in. Matthew 20. Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning and hired laborers for this vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So you, if you're hiring day laborers, these are not servants who work regularly with you. These are people who are seasonal workers, day laborers. You negotiate a price with them, and then they do the work. But, but these people aren't paying them. That, that's what's going on here. They're robbing, defrauding their employees, those who work for them. And this is particularly wicked. Um, the, their laborers withheld wages are crying out against them, which is vivid language echoing the Old Testament. Turn, turn to Deuteronomy. We're going to look at two passages in Deuteronomy briefly. Deuteronomy 15 where this crying out language shows up in connection with exactly this. See, part of what makes this sin so awful is it's against the very people you should be extra just and righteous to, that God takes particular attention and care for. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, if anyone among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you. Turn to Deuteronomy 24, even more direct language. Deuteronomy 24. And one of the things that's that's amazing reading through the Old Testament and the law of Israel is the care God has for the, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the weak. God is well aware that the powerful can oppress those under them, and he in many places, gives protections, provisions. Here's one of them. Verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, 
whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. God's concern these day laborers is such that you, you pay them that day. They've done the work that day. You pay them that day. You don't say come back tomorrow. You do it before the sun sets. Or they will cry out to the Lord against you. So this is a particular class of people that the law of Moses explicitly says you, you, take, you, you give them their due. This is justice. This is law. You agreed to pay them, you pay them. Except these people aren't. These people aren't. Leviticus 19.13 also says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. God cares about these things. So the laborers withheld wages are crying out against them. Vivid language of God caring and this outcry reaching out to him. And the Lord of Sabaoth or armies hears and will repay. That's the clear implication. It's reached his ears. God hears and he will act. And he's powerful. That, That word armies or hosts what we're illustrating is there's a power disparity between these landowners who have wealth and the people who they hire to mow their fields. And they can exert some force and power and they can withhold the money or they can say, come back next week or that my paying agent isn't in today, come back tomorrow. Or come up with whatever reasons they come up with to not pay them. There's one far, far, far more powerful still. And he... These workers have his ear. That, that's, that's the implication. When you wrong and oppress and cheat and defraud because you're able to, there is one who sees and hears and will act. That's, that's what's being um, declared here. This is similar to when Israel in Egypt cries out. I love this language, Exodus 2, 23 to 24. During the many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God, hearing their groaning, heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So just consider, if you have people work for you, whether it's people mowing your lawns and fields, painting your house, doing work for you, are you, are you paying what you've agreed to pay? Or do you try to find ways out of it? I talk to plenty of people who get jobs, and they ask, can I have Sundays off? And their employer says, sure, you can have Sundays off. And sure enough, don't you know it, about three weeks later, it's just once, but we need to, you're breaking your word. There are all sorts of ways you can do this, or it can be done to you. And God hates it, and is furious at it, and calls on those who do it to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. The Lord of Sabaoth hears and will repay. So what they've done, they've stored up for themselves this world's goods, thinking it's their treasure. It's moldering, it's contaminated, and it's spreading to them. They've done it by cheating those who work for them. They've done it by 
breaking their word. They agree to a price. They don't pay it. They've done it for a reason. Next, we see in point C, in order to live in self-indulgence. In order to live in self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So the first point, they have lived only for their own pleasure. And again, you don't have to be wealthy to do this. These words used here, luxury. Luxury can have the idea that it requires money. Things that are luxurious do require money. The idea here is just, could be translated carousing. Um, And self-centered is applied, the only other place it's used in the New Testament is in 1 Timothy 5, 6, where Paul tells Timothy not to add to the widow's list any widows who are self-indulgent being dead while she is alive. So being self-indulgent doesn't require lots of money. Someone who you might consider putting on the widow's list could be guilty of this. It's rather a way of living that's for your own pleasure, for your own comfort, for your own enjoyment, organizing your life that way. That's why they're amassing these things. They're going to get more use of them. They're going to get more pleasure from them. Certainly you can do this with money. But it's a way of living. It's a pursuit and a goal for life. And they're pursuing self-indulgent, self-centered, hedonistic living. Um, Now, there's deep irony here. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And when I first read that, I thought he was making a contrast that they were pampering themselves and they were um, treating themselves nicely while others were dying. I don't think that's what's meant at all. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 12. And one of the tips on this was that the, uh, the legacy standard actually put day of slaughter in, in uh, all caps, indicating they took it as an Old Testament quotation. And I think they're right. I think they're right. In Jeremiah 12, let's read the first three verses. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their hearts. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and you test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. I think the day of slaughter James is talking about is not the slaughter of the righteous, but the slaughter of the wicked. If you turn back to James 5, I think there's a terribly ironic truth going on here. The picture would be this. Picture a stall full of cattle, and some of the cattle have hoarded all the food. They're getting good and fat. Well, they're the first ones that are going to be slaughtered, right? It's kind of ironic. You're fattening yourself up for your own slaughter, is what James is saying. They have fattened their hearts for their own slaughter. And again, this gets back to the foolishness. Just as how crazy it is in the last days when the judge is at the door to be fighting over the stuff that molders and rots and rusts. Here, in the day of judgment, dawning at any moment, they're fattening themselves up for their own slaughter. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. 
They've lived only for their own pleasure. That, that also speaks to the great reversal truths that Jesus taught as well. You remember the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Yes, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And Lazarus, the rich man, sorry, I got that back. The rich man is in hell, and he cries out to Father Abraham. He's in torment. Abraham's response, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Where Jesus in Luke 6, 24, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So, Sum up again, they're storing up for themselves. They're gathering up for themselves. It's terribly ironic because they think they're gathering up treasure. They're gathering up moldy, rusty, rotting things that then are contaminating and devouring and spreading to them. They're fattening themselves up for their own slaughter. They're doing it by defrauding, cheating their workers. They're doing it so that they can live in self-indulgence and hedonistic pleasure Well, it's got a result, and it's resulting in the condemnation and murder of the innocent. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So we see that they are making evil judgments. The word for condemned um, shows up in a significant um, passage. Turn to Matthew 12. You see a sort of similar context. The idea is pronouncing judgments. And here we get some idea possibly of how they're ripping off and cheating their employees. I mean, it's possible they're just saying, no, I'm not going to pay you. It's also possible that accusing your workers of stealing from you or other things could be means of not paying them. Someone works for you. They come to get their pay at the end of the day. Sorry. Um, my accountant isn't here to pay. You got to come back tomorrow. He works three, four, five, six days. And then at the end you say, actually, we noticed that a shovel was missing and we think you did it. And so we're actually going to charge you and we're not going to pay you. Maybe something like that's happening. Yeah, the, probably the best example of this type of wicked practice would be Ahab. You could look at first Kings 21. We won't turn there now, but remember Ahab covets the vineyard of Naboth. He wants it, and he won't sell it to him, and he cries, and he throws a little temper tantrum, and Jezebel gives him advice. Why don't you just get him out of the way? So they get Naboth accused of blasphemy. He's killed, and then Ahab gets the vineyard. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing. But in Matthew 12, 1 through 8, we get a similar idea here. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. So somehow, these rich, hoarding, defrauding, self-indulgent people are attacking through legal means, judging, condemning the poor. This is what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 7. Is it not the rich who drag you into courts? 
So I don't know exactly in their context what that looked like in the Roman system. But I certainly know today there are all sorts of legal loopholes and ways not to pay people, to deny claims, to tie things up. There's nothing new under the sun. And so they're making evil judgments, which leads them, point two, to be guilty of their deaths. Now, it's possible these people are just going out and killing people, but I think more in the context, the idea is this. By not paying them, by tying it up in court, by charging innocent people with wrongdoing, these people are dying. The whole rationale in Deuteronomy for why you pay the day laborer that day is he needs it to eat. Again, Jesus was living in a world where you would ask for your daily bread each day. And so the consequence of this type of activity, I believe, is, is the death of people. It's possible that some wicked landowners were actually killing people directly and overtly, but I don't think that's necessary. I think it's far more likely the, the end result of all this is the condemnation of their workers, the poor, and their death, which they're fully guilty of, and it's murder, according to God. It's murder. They're guilty of their deaths. The final point, their victims do not resist them. Their victims do not resist them. One of the things that's remarkable at this passage, we see real oppression here. We live in a day and age where people just assume if somebody has wealth and somebody doesn't, there's oppression taking place. I hope you see now that's not true. These people are actually committing real crimes, Simply the presence of a wealth or power inequality does not necessitate something wrong. The Bible is well aware it could happen. We should be on our guard for it happening, but we actually have withheld wages. We actually have lawsuits and courts condemning the righteous. But we also live in a day and age that says, what do you do if someone's oppressing you, if someone's mistreating you? You fight back. But here... The hallmark of these righteous people is they aren't resisting them. It goes back to Jesus. Do not resist an evil man. Turning the other cheek. The contrast is made even greater of the wickedness of these people is that the people they're attacking and preying upon, they're not their enemies. It's not as though these poor workers are trying to steal from them and rob them at every opportunity. And so the landowners are thinking, well, I got to do what I can in return. What James is envisioning are righteous, hardworking individuals trying to earn a living, trying to eat, and they're being abused, mistreated, robbed, and they're trusting God, and they're not resisting them. They're not, they're not fighting back, which is, if, if you hear this message and you put yourself in the category of the one being wrong, live it out fully. Let the text fully speak of you. It's hard translating this from James's day, his legal situation to ours. But if we summarize what these people are doing, I think, at least at the heart level, we could be doing much of the same thing. Oh, I, I think it's all too easy in our country to gather stuff and hoard stuff and love stuff and worship stuff and make stuff your treasure. I think any one of us could be doing that. And... There are all sorts of ways to rip people off, to cheat people of what we owe them. Uh, These landowners are simply just not paying them, 
But there are all sorts of ways this can be done. And living in self-indulgence and for pleasure, our advertising industry is telling you that's a positive virtue. Treat yourself. You deserve it. And frivolous lawsuits condemning the righteous, again, that, that takes place in our day. So I think it's good for us to seriously consider how much of this shoe may fit. Before we immediately conclude, were the righteous poor being mistreated, whether or not there might be anything to the condemnation of the rich living as the richest people in the richest country in the richest time of the world. It's worth considering. Now, the good news, if you're being treated this way, is God sees and he cares. The judge is at the door. You honor him through keeping your eye fixed on him. You honor him by waiting for his justice. You reap coals on the heads of those who oppress you by not resisting them. They're not fighting fire with fire. This, this is a hard passage. But the strongest rebuke in the book. And we learned that even as our culture hates the inequality, there's something right there. What's right is when those with wealth and power abuse and take advantage of and mistreat those under them, it is a great evil. Truly, it is a great evil. We also learned that Real charges are brought here. There's evidence. Things are testifying and crying out. And it's not simply the existence of the inequality, but rather what is done by it. And so we also see that crime has to be committed. The reason I point that out is if you look ahead to verse 11, Pastor Daniel pointed this out to me earlier this week. Behold, as he's telling them to to endure, to be patient, behold, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you're going to make a top ten list of richest people in the Old Testament, Job's going to be first or second place. Solomon probably would be first place. Job has tons of stuff. He loses his stuff, and then he gets it back at the end. Job is one of the wealthiest individuals in the Old Testament. And... James is holding him up here. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're guilty of this. But this is the hallmark sin, the temptation of those with wealth and power. And so we do well to heed this, to examine ourselves, and ultimately to take comfort in the reality that God is coming. And he will make things right. Let's pray, and I'll call the worship team up for our closing song. Lord God, um, we... Tremble at your judgments. Um, You are not a God to be trifled with. And Lord, we want to first make sure we are not guilty of any of these things, that we are not hoarding this world's goods, that we are not gathering up, molding treasure that will only condemn, contaminate us. We, We want to pay our debts We want to keep our commitments in our word. We don't want to live in hedonistic, self-indulgent pleasure. We want to live as your servants. We do not want to condemn the righteous and falsely accuse. We want our dealings to be right and righteous. So, Lord, first we pray that you would purify us. And, Lord, living in this world, we're well aware that there are others who will do these very things. 
Help us to be patient and to endure well, to not resist, but to entrust ourselves to you in your coming judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.